Please take your Bibles and open them once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We will be taking a break from the book of Genesis just for the next couple of weeks. And then we will return and we will, Lord willing, finish the book of Genesis before the fall, if you can believe it. It's been a while, but uh, we, will, we will be able to finish up the, that uh, wonderful book and study. Before we begin this morning, why don't we begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, this is your word. We ask that you will not only grant us eyes to see it, but a heart and hearts that delight in it. More than this, O oh God, I ask that you will work in us, that we may delight in you. That we will rejoice and celebrate you. That we would be amazed by you. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1932, there was a significant study that was done. It was funded by John D. Rockefeller. Not so much a, a study as it was a report that was written. It was a report that was the combined efforts of seven different mainline denominations here in uh, the United States. One of those denominations that helped write the report was that of the Presbyterian Church in the USA. So that would be the, the PC USA. The report at that time came out, and the title of it was Rethinking Missions, a layman's inquiry after 100 years. The aim of the, the report was to try to evaluate and to try to encourage a wholesale, like the title says, rethinking of what missions is to be in the rest of the 20th century. The argument was fairly simple. We have come a long way... We have seen a lot. We have grown a lot. What we have seen is that, you know, those other faiths that are out there, they are not so very much different than our own. The things that people believe, they are okay. And what the world needs is not the gospel. We do not need to impose the message of the Bible or the message of Christ on other faiths and declare Christ as the only way. What the world needs is... Acts of mercy. They argued that missions should not so much be about bringing the gospel, but about improving the conditions and the social status of people groups around the world. The concern was more of issues of a social nature than with issues of a gospel nature. And this report came out and it deeply affected churches and missions. They began to take it seriously. It was, it was a well-funded, well-received, uh, well by and large, report from many churches. One individual in the Presbyterian Church at the time, J. Gresham Machen, received that report. And J. Gresham Machen was himself not only a Bible scholar, but he himself was devoted to what the Bible taught. And he saw that this report 
and the influence it was having in his own denomination was disastrous. And he saw that it would be disastrous, not only for his own church or for his own denomination, it would be disastrous for worldwide missions. To rethink missions as being merely about Christ to being about social issues. And so he wrote his own report. He entitled it, The Responsibility of the Church in Our New Age. And we are always in a new age. But he writes this. He says, when I say that a true Christian church is radically intolerant, I mean simply that the church must maintain the high exclusiveness of its and universality of its message. That is, it presents the gospel of Jesus Christ not merely as a way of salvation, but as the only way. It cannot make common cause with other faiths. It cannot agree not to proselytize. Its appeal is universal and it admits of no exceptions. All are lost in sin, the gospel tells us. None may be saved except by the way set forth in the gospel. Machen writes this report, and rather than being received well by the churches in his own denomination, it results in his being disciplined first, suspended, and then being cut out. His response was to found to help found a, a new denomination with it for the Presbyterian Church. It was to, to begin a an entirely new mission board. And so this report comes out in 1932. By 1934, he, largely on his own, he funded the existence of a new mission board. And in 1934, they began to send out missionaries to China. By 1937, the cost that he had felt the pain of betrayal, the constant meetings, the, the constant writing to defend what the gospel so clearly demanded of us. The cost to his health was so great that on January 1st of 1937, he passed away. J. Gresham Machen felt necessary to give his life for there at the end was to arguing for was to argue for the un the unswerving mission that we have been given by Christ must persist amongst his churches I want you to understand that the the attack that was on missions in J. Gresham Mason's day, is alive and well in our day. What, what is the mission of the church? You may be here, if you are new to Limerick Chapel or new to church in general, you may be thinking, what, what is the mission of the church? You may think it, there may be a moral mission. We, our goal is to get people to be good. This is one of the most stunningly large questions we can answer as a church. Why do we exist? 
Some churches have taken their mission to merely be to make converts, to gather a crowd, to do all that they can to attract newcomers. That is not the mission that we have been granted. It is far more serious, far more significant and far reaching than merely getting someone in the door of a church or getting someone to make a profession of faith in Jesus. Other churches have aimed to make their mission primarily uh, social justice issues. Whatever issues are the hot-button issues of the day, those social justice issues, they make it their aim to promote and to teach and, and to push those ideas further and further. Others uh, respond negatively against this. Make the mission of the church to, to rescue the nation, to save the nation. A uniting of church and patriotism. Others will make their mission around mercy issues. They see issues, good issues to to be dealing with, issues of homelessness and poverty and needs in the community. And they spend themselves in wonderful ways to meet those needs. Other churches aim at other issues. Other churches will aim at Encouraging people to gain wealth and to seek God's favor through material blessing. And the question is, what is the mission? Many of these may, may touch on it, but they are not the mission. And Christ has given us what that mission is. It is to, to make disciples. To make disciples of, of all nations. And what I want us to see this morning is that the mission of every local church is not something you and I, is not something we discover, it is not something we create, it is not something that we have the right to, to work out ourselves, it is something we merely must recover, that is, it is something that has been given to us by Christ. And the mission that we have is the same as Every other faithful, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, gospel-preaching church that exists and has ever existed. The mission cannot, it has not changed from when Christ declared, go and make disciples. But I want us this morning to pull back even further. Because the aim of, there is an aim for making disciples that I want us to see. That is, making disciples is not the ultimate aim for which we exist. There is a greater aim, a a chief goal. Something that making disciples points to. We see that in our text this morning. We see what the chief aim that drives our mission is. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The context of this passage is incredibly valuable for us. Look with me at verse 
verses 1 to 6. Real briefly, let me read. This gives us a picture of Paul. He, he gives a, a mini report to this church at Corinth. He gives a mini report. What does my ministry look like? How am I going about? What does it look like to faithfully serve God on this mission? And he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we, re- as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation or openly declaring the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves are bondservants, your bondservants, your servants, for Jesus' sake. So faithful ministry It prioritizes Christ above everything. We preach Christ crucified. We're your servants for Christ's sake. We preach Christ crucified. And the way we do ministry is is primarily, is not through deceitful, manipulative tactics. It is not by leaning on our creativity. It is simple, open declaration of the truth. And then we see in verses 7 onward what this kind of ministry costs. Verse 7. But we have this treasure that is this treasure, this gospel, this ministry to declare the gospel, this ministry, this, this treasure in earthen vessels. That is clay pots some of your translations will have. This treasure of the gospel we have in clay pots. What are those pots that he is talking about? He is talking about himself. He is talking about one another. We have this glorious treasure of the gospel in us, in clay, earthen vessels. These vessels are expendable. They're fragile. They're weak. The reason God has aligned such glorious treasure to be held in earthen, simple, fragile, weak, simple vessels, so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And then he goes on to describe what Emerson read earlier. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed. We might say we are bewildered. We are, we are almost at a loss, but not in despair, not completely at a loss. We are persecuted. We are not forsaken. We are struck down, not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. What Paul is saying there is he is trying to give the picture of what this ministry has cost him. Faithfully pursuing, faithfully carrying out this mission doesn't come cheap, and it hasn't come cheap for Paul. It has cost him. 
We hear echoes of this earlier when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So Paul goes to Asia for a brief period. And he gives testimony. He writes this, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He had gotten to this place where he he and those with him, they had despaired of life. A few chapters later in 2 Corinthians, he writes this. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Unfrequent, and and when he describes a night and a day I was adrift at sea, Luke describes this in the book of Acts as they were adrift in a storm. And so dark and terrible was the storm that they could not see the sun or the moon for days, he writes, for days, for a period, a long period of time. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Paul is constantly living out his life as he is on mission for the Lord. He is constantly under threat from the world. Abuse at the hands of Christians, abuse at the hands of non-Christians. And Paul is writing this, and he still has years and years left of service. Years and years left of suffering. It's, it is hard for us to imagine the mental, the emotional, the physical toll this all took on him. You can almost hear it in those words. Daily, the burden that he is bearing. The constant worry and fear of what's next. The uncertainty of what's right around the corner. And just when he thinks things are going well, he is beset upon once again. It's hard to imagine the kinds of scars that Paul was marked by. And Paul says that what carried him through this, verse 14, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Here's his confidence that The promise that God has, the same Lord who has raised his son from the dead, has promised that he will raise Paul. And that is Paul's anchor in all that he faces. This will be over. My sufferings have an expiration date. 
and then I will be with Christ. And then in verse 15, Paul gives us the answer or the reason why he is on this mission and willing to bear the cost for this mission. And this is where I want us to see this morning. This is where I want us to anchor at. He writes, for all things. Why, why are you doing all this, Paul? Why have you suffered so much? Why are you laboring so much? Why are you sacrificing so much? Why are you serving so much? Why are you pursuing this mission with such vigor and tenacity? Verse 15. For all things are for your sake. Or as one translation puts it, it is all for your sake. Or another translation says, all of this is for your benefit. I'm doing all of this for you. Paul knows what we are so often blind to. We, we think that our suffering when we are serving the Lord, the, the way we expend ourselves, you who burned yourself out with kids and service yesterday, the temptation is at the end of the day, we're exhausted. We feel it the next day. What was the point of that? I'm so tired. And Paul knows what we so easily forget. That it is not pointless The mission is not pointless and the cost and the sacrifice and the service is not pointless. It is profitable. It is profitable for others' sake. It is a productive suffering. You know, parents, men, women, you you work, you labor. Some of you work out of the home. You go to work, you, you labor, you deal with all sorts of stuff that you hate at work. You, you deal with people that you don't particularly enjoy at work. You have tasks that you do not enjoy. There are things about your job, I am guessing, that you do not like. And you do it, though, for your family. Some of you moms... Some of you dads, mostly moms, feel the weight of some of that homework. Some of you come home and you're doing the dishes. If you've got small children, there are always dishes. I feel at our house, I'm, fi- I'm constantly finding snack bowls everywhere. It's, pull them out, fill them up, they've got them. There's laundry to do every, every week. Men, there's grass to cut every week. There are things to be done. And you do it, and you do it, and you do it again, and again, and again. Why are you spending so much? Doing it for your sake. Doing it for love's sake. Pain is often productive. No pain, no gain, the old saying goes. The sacrifices we make for the sake of the mission, they are productive. They're productive for the people sitting next to us. As we serve, as we give. They are productive for those of you who serve in children's ministry. And you wonder, you, you, you teach week after week or you help week after week and you wonder, do, do they get any of this? 
they get far more than we know. We clean the building. You clean those toilets. You sweep and you mop and you pick things up. You send letters. You write cards. You make a visit. You make a meal. You mow someone else's lawn. You care for someone. You love someone. You give. It makes a difference. In the hands of the Lord, all of that cost is used for his glory to produce what he is working at in the lives of those in our church family as well as in our own lives. All of this is productive. And it is productive as we, as we work together as a church. We do far more together than we could ever do scattered on our own. There are disciples in Scotland and Puerto Rico that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for this church. There are people around the world that know of Christ and we have a hand in that. There are people in Argentina and China and Chile in the Philippines, in so many places around the world, in hard-to-reach tribes. Not because you want, but because we sacrifice to send, and because some have sacrificed much to go. But this is not Paul's ultimate reason. He says, for all of this is for your sake. And then he goes on. If, if that's the horizontal aspect to the mission. There is a horizontal aspect. It's one another. For all of this is for your sake. He then goes to the vertical aspect. What's driving him? In the New King James, it simply says, for all things are for your sake, that. It might be better said, so that. For this purpose. So that grace, having spread through many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. The the goal of Paul in pursuing this mission is not only to benefit others and to benefit this church at Corinth. It is to see the peoples of God rebound or, or, or redound in thanksgiving, to rejoice in thanksgiving, So that God is ultimately and chiefly glorified. All of this is to magnify, to make much of God. And so the aim and the mission of every church is not merely to make disciples. But it is to make much of Jesus by making disciples. This is what Paul is driving at. All of this is to abound to the glory of God. Why? Why is this? It's because there is, there is nothing and no one greater than God. We see this in Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? I love that question when the, the Lord is, 
there, there's got to be a little humor there. What are you going to answer? It is, a, it is a rhetorical question because there, there is no answer. Who is like me? Who do you got? Fill in the blank. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Tell me who you got. Who's as great as me? I'll let you know how he is. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not and be not afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not of any other. You know, for us to make our aim in anything, much less our mission, anything else other than the glory of God, we, are, we would be shooting below and aiming at something that is far less worthy than God himself. It would be to rob the people, it would be to rob God of his glory, of his due glory. You know, there has been, since we've got space theme all around us, there was earlier this year, late last year rather, in 2021, December of 2021, the James Webb telescope that was launched into space. I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures. If you haven't, let me just encourage you, go online, you can start Googling. It, what we're seeing is just incredible. The pictures that it is presenting to us of our universe are are just amazing. And yet, no matter how breathtaking those images are, it is not going to capture anything that even approaches how spectacular and glorious our God is. Isaiah 40, 25 to 26. The Lord says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. That is the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Well, this is the aim that we have as Christians. Christ tells us, Mark chapter 12, verse 31, the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Why? Because there is no one and nothing like him. He creates for his glory. Isaiah writes, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and daughters from afar. From the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name. Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. God not only creates for his glory, he rescues and he saves for his glory. God told Pharaoh he had put him on the throne in Exodus 9.16. He says, but for this purpose, I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He sums this up in Psalm 106.7-8. Our fathers, when they, were in the, when they were in Egypt, they did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. But they rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his power. And it's not only Israel he saves and rescues. 
We are told in Ephesians 1, God rescues, he redeems. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. God spares and he pardons. He forgives you. Why? For his namesake. Listen to these words that God says to his wayward and rebellious people. He says, for my namesake, I have deferred my anger. For, my, for the sake of my praise, I restrain it that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. When David was caught in sin and sought repentance, he writes in Psalm 25, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You know know why God forgives any one of us? It is not because you are lovely. It's not because we are worthy of it. It's not because you will work for it and change and so merit his forgiveness in the present. God forgives, God pardons for his namesake. For it glorifies God, it exalts him who shows mercy to those who do not deserve it. That is, we see more of God in his mercy And so God, to exalt him and to call us to be glad in him, forgives. He writes, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And why does God do all this? He does this for the joy and the gladness of all peoples. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. You see how that works? Praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad in it. Let them sing for joy. Psalm 69, 32. When the humble see it, that is when they see your work, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts rejoice. Psalm 70, verse 4, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation, sal- may those who love your salvation forevermore say, God is great. God's aim in our mission to make disciples, God's aim to bring him glory is not like our selfish aims to bring ourselves glory. It's different, wholeheartedly different. It's different because when you bring yourself glory, you are not the greatest that there is. When you and I, when we seek glory of anything other than God, including ourselves, we are We are committing idolatry. And for God to seek ultimately anything that is less than himself would be to make him the greatest idolater that there is. 
More than this, we remember that God is not only one, He is three in one. And so even as the Lord is seeking His own glory, it is the Father seeking to glorify and exalt the Son. And the Son who is glorifying the Father and the Spirit who is glorifying them both. It is one and three. It is a Trinitarian glory. And more than all of this, as God seeks His own glory, He does it Unlike you and I, where we are doing it for selfish reasons and it costs other people. As God seeks his own glory, he does it for our good. If God did not seek his own glory, if he did not seek to exalt himself and to gather others who would exalt him, it would result... It would result in our eternal judgment. Because as God seeks his own glory, he gathers those who will rejoice in him. He does it for our gladness, for he knows that there is nothing else that we, were, that we will be satisfied with. There is nothing else that, we, that will make our hearts truly and infinitely and spectacularly glad other than Him. The mission is for God's glory. The mission is for our joy in Him. And so we make disciples by making or for making much of Jesus Christ. That is the aim. We make much of Jesus Christ by making disciples. And so we pray. We pray for Christ to stoke the fires of our hearts that we may increasingly desire to see him exalted in our lives and in the world. We pray for missionaries and pastors and elders that God would sustain them We pray for our missionaries especially. And they who have sacrificed everything. That God would be kind to them. That he would have mercy on them. That that through them, others may know and be glad in God. We pray for those who do not know that their hearts would be glad in God through Jesus Christ. We not only pray, we seek ourselves to be those kinds of people, those kinds of disciples, for that is what we are. To be disciples who make disciples, who see and serve, savor and are satisfied with Jesus. We want to make disciples. That is your responsibility individually and our responsibility together. So find someone. Pray for them. Spur them on. Encourage them. Exhort them. Challenge them. Love them. Serve them. 
We not only pray, we not only make disciples in our midst, we, we encourage you to go. Some of us are young enough so that we have decades left to give. And there are cities and there are villages and there are tribes that have little to no gospel witness. Many of them do not yet have the scriptures in their own language. And there are people groups that do not have the scriptures. Young men and young women, might it be that God may use you Consider going, maybe not for decades, consider going for six months to a year. After high school, after college. Go. Go to Puerto Rico and spend six months with the Deliches, serving them, caring for them, working in their small church plant. Spend six months with Dale and Avalfries in Scotland as they work to prepare and get this new church building together. Why not sacrifice not only to, to go, but so that someone else may go? Take time to visit, to call, to email, to encourage. Why not, young person, in the future you graduate from college Why not find a small church plant in rural community or in an urban context in which you can serve and love and make disciples? We so often determine everything by the jobs that we are looking for, the plans that we have for our future. Why not sacrifice those for something greater, for something grander, for something that will cause you to be far more glad in eternity than anything this world has to offer. You know, missions is not a recruitment project for God's labor force, John Piper has said. It is a liberation project from the heavy burdens and the hard yokes of other gods. And so we sacrifice. And so we send because the mission is great because our God is glorious and our God is worth it. We as a church, we share in the same mission and purpose that every church has held since the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. Whether we are talking about churches in New York City or the churches and the tribes and the jungles of Indonesia. The mission is to make much of Jesus by making disciples. There is no greater honor. There is no greater purpose. There is no greater mission. Let us serve him. Let us go. Let us make disciples for the glory of God and for the gladness of all peoples. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so easily distracted. We so easily allow our heart 
to wander off in the pursuit of things that will not satisfy. To pursue and be to pursue those things that ultimately will not eternally matter. Our Father, forgive us. Help us to remember the mission that you have given us as a church. Help us to remember, to, be, to rejoice in. Help us to make much of you. That we, that we may make you big in the world. That your name will be writ large in our lives and that you will use our lives to write in such large letters the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon the lives of others. Oh God, be glad to do this in us. And make us glad in you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Our great Savior. Amen.